Hello and welcome to the New Lions podcast. I'm Faisal Yafai, and this is a podcast where we delve into some of the biggest ideas, events, and personalities in the Middle East and beyond. Today, I'm joined by Nick Fortek, a doctoral candidate in history at the University of Pennsylvania, and the author of a new essay for us called The Philosopher's Wine. Later in the podcast, I will be speaking to Idris Ahmed, one of New Lines' editors, and the person who edited Nick's piece. Nick, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much for having me. Happy to be here. So one of the uh, original titles that we workshopped at the magazine for your piece uh, was called Revolution, Love and Exile and the Solace of a Philosopher's Wine. We obviously decided on the shortened version of that. But it sort of gives you a sense of the the scope of your essay because it's a very wide-ranging story you're trying to tell. Yeah. Um no, I I I think that's true. I mean, certainly one of the one of the things that made it compelling to write, and one of the the things that I hope readers find interesting is the you know, the extent of experience that I I hopefully tried to kind of capture. Um, in talking with the subject of the piece and then and then turning it into a long form essay and and one of the goals was to to sort of as you say capture the range of of experiences and emotions that that someone in his position went through yeah I mean it's the story of for those who haven't read it yet it's the story of one Syrian man's journey from the edges of the revolution to the very heart of it and then finally into exile and it's a 9,000-word essay, the longest we've published in the magazine. And it takes place over this four-year period, through two years of the revolution and fighting, and then two years in exile. I, I want to ask you first, like, how did you come across the story and become interested in telling it? Yeah, so, so I had spent, or I, I spent the summer of 2019 in Cairo, um, my, my doctoral research surrounds the British Empire in the Middle East in the late 19th century, and as part of that, um, their role in uh, Egypt um, after after they invade in 1882. Um, and so, and so, I was in Cairo in the summer of 2019, and sort of in in the way that these things happen, I met uh, and developed a relationship with the individual who would become the subject of this piece. Uh, and, and, you know, as I hope, um, readers get a sense, he's a fascinating, a very compelling, a very interesting, a very thoughtful person. And sort of as we became, as we got to know each other, um, over the course of this summer, he, you know, slowly revealed to me or, or told me aspects of his story, aspects of his life, um, in Syria uh, during the revolution. Um, and kind of from there, uh, it became, um, ever more apparent that, that this was, a, that, that I thought this was a really, really interesting narrative and, and unique in the sense that it, it allowed or, or it sort of offered the opportunity to delve rather deeply into, um, an opposition fighter's experience uh, in the early stages of the Syrian revolution. Um, mm. And so, so I sort of, that was, that was in the back of my mind. And um, I, I returned to Philadelphia uh, where I was based and then returned again to Cairo in February, 
2020. So just before coronavirus, we sort of resumed our, our friendship or our, our acquaintanceship. Um, and at that point, uh, he revealed, you know, more of his story, kind of, this is, I knew enough to be able to kind of ask him about some of his experiences. Um, and, and we, we built a trust over time that, that I think, uh, gave him the sense that, that I was someone who, who he could share this story or this kind of his, his experience with. Mm. Um, and then, and then kind of finally to wrap up it, the, one of the last things that I learned was about his brief stay in, uh, Sadiq Jalal Al-Azam's flat in Beirut. Right. And at that point I, I felt like, you know, this, this was a story that had a kind of framing device or, or that was sort of what, what struck me initially. And so my early, the first, the kind of first thing that I, uh, that I suggested was that he write the piece right. um, because, you know, for sort of obvious reasons, uh, he is much better placed than I um, to, to, to tell his own story. Uh, and, and for a variety of reasons, he wasn't comfortable with that. That wasn't something he was particularly interested in. And so I kind of pitched him on this idea of my essentially writing his story. Um, and, and so from there, we, uh, we set up a series of interviews um, in which I kind of, uh, we went bit by bit through his experience. And then I think I'll come back to the the interview structure, but I, I want to talk a little bit about the sort of the writing process, because I think a lot yeah. of the, a lot of our audience will be writers in some form, journalists and so on. And they might be intrigued by how you decided to frame it. I noticed there were very few quotes in the story. So you decided early on to write it from this third person perspective. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, um, I did. And, and so, so yeah, that raises a really interesting question. I initially, uh, one of the kind of the questions that I had was, was why not, or one of, one of the ideas that I had was to present it as an oral history, right? Mm -hmm. So you can imagine something along the lines of, of the really amazing work that, that Wendy Perlman has done um, in which, you know, you're essentially getting out of the way of someone else's story because it is not lost on me that I am not a Syrian, that I, I do not have direct experience in conflict. Um, and, and so I, I had thought about initially the sort of the benefits of of an oral history and there were a couple of reasons why that in the end felt like a choice um that or rather that that a better alternative might be to create or kind of write it in third person omniscient what why was that yeah so i guess the first was sort of pragmatic um in in the story that i was given or i, or I should say throughout the interviews that we conducted, there were enough personal identifiers and a sort of enough detail that would that would identify various people, obviously both him, but also a number of individuals uh, who he had spent time with, who he was working with in sort of opposition groups. Um, and it felt as if to, to get rid of that, to protect the identities, which was which was part of our agreement you would have to simply remove large chunks of the narrative. And that felt a little inelegant. The second aspect was 
the ability to sort of frame and play with chronology in a way that I thought would allow the piece to emphasize certain aspects of his story. Mm. Tell us a bit more about that. As I say, a lot of the the people who are listening will be, you know, interested in in the writing structure. I mean, how does it? How do you structure a piece like that? Yeah. So uh, right. So so essentially, I mean, the, the kind of way that the interviews worked, or the audio material that I ended up working with, was largely chronological. Right. So we start kind of at the beginning, um, in in March 2011, uh, and and move really up to the, the present day. Um, but certainly in kind of some detail through 2015. And what what I thought was what I what I felt like would be particularly evocative was this the the sort of set piece that the story opens with, which allows you so that so for those who haven't read the piece, it, it begins with him having just left Syria. He is now in Beirut. And he is in the apartment of the philosopher Sadiq Jalal Al-Azam. And that moment felt like it allowed the opportunity to sort of start to offer the reader an interpretive framework for how to how to sort of approach the piece. Because you have a series of, op- I mean, you know, I'm, I'm not sure how interesting this is, but you have a series of oppositions that that allow you to sort of to start to engage with the piece. You have one of the world's uh, most well-known and sort of most wonderful philosophers who is who is giving refuge to an opposition fighter. So you have a kind of a juxtaposition between the active and the contemplative life. Um, and and what and and so sort of those framing devices, I felt, and I may very well be wrong, I think you know, one can quibble with all of these choices. But those framing devices, I thought, uh, allowed the piece to offer the reader a kind of, um, it allowed the piece to contour some of the ways um, interpretation worked, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, no, it doesn't. I think a lot of people will find that those details very intriguing. I, I quite like this framing device. Um, one of the reasons I liked it, I think, is that... Some of the, the parts of the story are, of course, beyond the comprehension of, of most people, certainly beyond their experiences. But this idea of, you know, being in somebody's apartment, okay, it's a very famous philosopher, and drinking their wine and having a lot of a, a lot of fears and concerns about the past and things you have been through, that is a very nice way into it for a lot of people before you get into the part of the story that, you know, frankly, most people thankfully have not experienced. Yeah, thank you, thank you. I mean, I'm I, that that's certainly that was certainly one of the goals, right? To to kind of give people an in, exactly as you say, to a set of experiences that that most readers and quite frankly, you know, the writer himself has not had. Um, right. Yes. Of course. And yes. and and to sort of to orient them in a way that feels familiar enough that you keep reading, mm-hmm. right? I, I think that's the that's the kind of goal. And, and, and I felt kind of comfortable, you know, and, and I had discussed this with the subject and, and sort of the terms of, of, of this piece or, or the terms that I, that kind of pitched him on were we would, we would completely protect identities and that I would have the freedom to, to structure the piece, to kind of create a voice for the piece. Um, 
but but I would remain tethered to the information that I was given, tethered mm. to his experience. And so the kind of freedoms, again, lay in playing with chronology and trying to craft a voice that that was evocative enough that that, that anyone would be interested in reading a piece this long. Um, but I think I think you're right that that it allowed hopefully it allows people a sort of into again a, a range of experiences that are that are uh, had by by very few people. Mm, some of the hardest experiences that that humans can go through. I mean, one yeah. of the things that I I liked about it actually was that it sort of brings out the humanity of the conflict. It, it, you you get a sense of the sort of torturous negotiations that go on in a situation like that. So it's quite human in that sense. You can sympathize with them. Although I wonder how many people would find him a sympathetic character. Yeah, I, I think, you know, I'm, I, I, the purpose, certainly my aim in the piece was not to write an encomium. Um, it, it was to, to lay out for readers you know, in a very kind of time-worn way, the uh, a story about an individual in incredibly difficult circumstances forced to make a series of hard choices. And, and the, I, I certainly didn't want the reader to come away with the idea that every choice made is endorsed in the piece. And I, and I don't, mm. you know, to, to not to kind of speak for, for the subject of the piece, but, but over the course of our interviews, you know, what became clear is, is that from his perspective, not every choice he made was the right choice. And, and there are, um, you know, and, and some of the choices he has made have created an enormous amount of, of, of grief and a sense of, um, you know, losing, potentially losing or, or working against one's own principles. And so I, I, the, it's exactly as you say that the the kind of purpose of the piece is not to to glorify a hero. It's instead to present a series of of difficult choices. I mean, that's why you know it's so hard with these stories because you're trying to tell the human story of somebody living through extraordinary circumstances. But of course, there's a cinematic quality to the story, but it isn't it isn't a Hollywood story. There isn't something, there isn't a happy ending at the end. I mean, Abu Kifah does things that in any other context, and perhaps even within that context, are quite horrifying. I mean, there are people just within the, just within the, the characters talked about in that story, there are people who will be mourning for the rest of their lives the loss of their father, for example, in one case. Yeah. So it's very difficult I mean, as a reader, it's very difficult sometimes to read these things because you want to sympathize. But on the other hand, you want to re retain the idea that those are real people on the other end of the gun. Yeah, no, precisely, precisely. And, and I think, you know, if if on its own terms, this, this piece is successful, I think it's successful because it works to humanize a, a context and a character without justifying every action that they took, but mm -hmm. but merely to sort of underline the extreme complexity and the extreme difficulty of one individual's experience within the broader Syrian conflict. Um, but but I absolutely think you're right that that we shouldn't overlook the fact that um, that 
the choices made by the central subject uh, have consequences, and 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 that's not, and that's also not a fact that's overlooked by the subject himself. I mean, I think part of what drew him to wanting to share the story with me and and allowing it to sort of allowing me then to to write a story and and pitch it to to you guys was it it became somewhat cathartic mm. um and it yes. it offered a sort of way to memorialize a set of actions some good some not so good um for a broader audience without without trying to absolve yeah i i wanted i wanted to talk, to think a little bit about um the aspects that weren't talked about um one thing i thought was intriguing that you didn't talk too much about in the piece was bravery and i was sort of interested in this because i think when you when you live in relative safety you imagine that there is some sort of mental negotiation that you would go through before you put yourself in, you know, in such a dangerous situation, like, for example, lying to the Mohabharat as he does, or fleeing the country, or going through a checkpoint only to to call up the guy at the checkpoint and say, hey, I've just passed you, and then running into a ditch while the police come after you. I mean, if you thought through those situations, you wouldn't, you probably wouldn't do them. And I think that one of the interesting things about the story is that the, the character Abu Kivah seems to stumble into these situations without fully understanding their consequences. And I guess that's because if you did understand their consequences, you just wouldn't be able to do them. You'd be too afraid. Yeah, I, I think that's right. I mean, I, my impression, I, one of the reasons that, that terms like brave, I tried to shy away from terms like bravery, were because I wanted to to sort of underline and, and this is my impression again from from having spoken with him at great length and also having had the privilege of knowing a number of other Syrians who were who were sort of active in opposition circles in 2011 2012 2013 um, to not to both memorialize but to not quite lionize because I think to lionize in some sense dehumanizes and, and it creates sort of grand morality tales and makes, makes individuals who are, who are in some sense deeply, deeply exceptional, but also part of a much broader fabric in which the kind of regular rules of the world as, as someone like I understand it are paused momentarily. Mm. And so the the what what strikes and what certainly strikes me i mean to be completely clear you know my my admiration for individuals who take enormous risk to change the political circumstances they find themselves in is is pretty unbounded but but i i wanted to sort of convey the ways in which a lot of a lot of the decisions and actions that are being made are highly reactive mm. they are um occurring again within a context in which the sort of yeah the the regular rules seem suspended there's there's a sort of frisson and excitement a, a tension and a nervousness in those moments that allows people to behave in ways that as you say were they to sort of think through them at great length they may not behave in um so i hope i hope that makes sense i hope that answers yeah, yeah. your question 
were there i mean you like most people of course you followed the the story of the conflict for years were there any aspects of his story that particularly surprised you you know i was i was surprised by uh the sort of the twists and turns of it in in again my my experience is not i'm i'm not a scholar of the syrian conflict um but you know, I, I think on, on some level, just as 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 a sort of watcher of Syrian Syria, um, he's he he went through a lot. He took a lot of risk, and and I think on some level is very fortunate to have escaped um, Syria when he did. I, I think I I was not at all. Uh, familiar with the fact that that at least in this case, and I can't speak for other cases, um, Sadiq Jalal al-Azam had, had offered his house as a safe house um, to at least one individual uh, fleeing the conflict and that, and I certainly knew um, Sadiq's political stances vis-a-vis -vis the regime, but but did not know that that he had sort of, he had offered his space um, again, to at least one person. Mm. Um, so, so I think those things surprised me. Um, but, but I guess, and, and I don't make, I, I don't at all say this to sound, to sound jaded in any way, but just having followed Syria, having gotten to know over time, truly incredible individuals who, who again, have taken a lot of risk. Um, I think my admiration is quite large, but but I'm I'm sort of no longer surprised by the to use a word that that we just talked about, kind of not using. I'm 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 not sure I'm any longer surprised by the bravery of of many many people because it's it's sort of it it has become so apparent over time. Mm, yeah. It takes a certain kind of bravery to walk into these protests knowing precisely what's going to happen yeah and and um precisely and and that and i i again my my admiration is sort of unbound is is unbounded for it um but but i we've all been watching and certainly in the early days of of the revolution in 2011 and 2012 i think we all watched with enormous admiration individuals taking those risks and and um you know and so i guess in sitting here in in 2021 i'm not sure i'm i'm any longer surprised by it though my admiration holds as firm as it did then mm. um i wanted to ask you something about a sort of literary device that you use the only time that you use quotes at any length i noticed was at the very end and yeah. this is after he becomes the artist. You refer to him as the fighter all the way through, and then he becomes the artist. Yeah. And is that because you felt there was a, a difference between his life then and now, and he's only now speaking as himself? Yes, uh, to a certain extent. I mean, no, no, I guess, no, I don't, I don't want to, I don't want to sort of say that there's a, there's a difference between, um, that he only speaks as himself towards the end. I mean, uh, we, you know, we, we start to get into kind of complicated questions about identity and, and what constitutes um, someone's identity 
but but what it, what felt important to me partly because we had made the decision or I'd made the decision not to present oral history was to feature his voice at some length in the piece and because I had access to as I described in the piece one of the things that's happening at the very end um, and sort of to this day is this conceptualization of, of a sculptural program that allows him to to kind of work through some of his experiences and and part of that conceptualization has involved writing about the meaning inherent in this sculptural program and and I thought that was a nice way to give voice to the character um, and and to sort of get out of the way and allow him to articulate some of the the emotions that 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 came through this process of of thinking about what had happened in Syria, um, and and it was a, you know it was another space where I where it felt important to try and, you know, get out of the way. And then in the, in the, I mean, the story, it sort of ends in the piece around 2015. And so mm -hmm. in the six years since, I guess you've only recently been in touch with him. Do you, do you want to share what's happened with him or that would that, um, would that give too much away? You know, I mean, I, I guess I, I, um, I, I could put it this way. One, one of the things that I, I thought a lot about in the piece was where hope should lie and whether how to convey or what the right way to sort of think through conveying hope and aspiration was and by what I what I mean by that is I think the piece in some ways ends hopefully it ends with this moment of an individual kind of transforming themselves into someone who's thinking about art and thinking about meaning in in fairly profound ways and I and I don't want to give the impression that everything sort of worked out well. This is an individual who still lives a very marginalized life. This is an individual who still, um, you know, doesn't have an enormous sense of stability. Um, and, and, and I thought long and hard about whether or not offering the reader a sort of glimmer of hope was the right choice. And, and that's not to say that, that his experience right now or his life in any way is hopeless. It isn't. Um, as I said before, he's an incredibly resourceful, thoughtful, interesting, compelling person um, who has many talents and, uh, and continues to, to, to make a, a life in Cairo. But um, it's certainly true that the- it's hard. Yeah, but the difficulties that he experiences at the very end, being estranged from his family, and of course being outside of the country, and um, having um, you know, traumatic um, thoughts about what happened, those things are still there. And so, I was wondering about your decision then to end on a hopeful note. Yeah, I, I guess what I wanted to do both 
because of my 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 impression of him as a person, because of um, the 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 activities that I've seen him undertake in Cairo, sort of as an acquaintance, I wanted to to pay homage to his creativity, to his sort of willingness to do the difficult work, work that I, I can, you know, I can't imagine of trying to process exactly, as you say, these, these experiences, um, which is very difficult work. And, and so I wanted to sort of leave the piece on a note of um, hope for the future and, and to kind of, to allow him or, or to give the, to leave the reader aware that that he had transformed in certain ways and, and that that the the projects dominating his life now are not the same projects that that were dominating his life in 2011 and 2012 but at the same time one of the things that i i i certainly worried about or or thought about was not leaving the reader with a sense that that all is right in the world or all is right in in his life because it's still a marginalized existence it's still a difficult existence it's it's an existence without a tremendous amount of stability um certainly financial uh and and so that would that was a kind of that was a choice that i wrestled with if mm. that makes sense lastly i think i should ask you what do you hope readers will get out of the piece yeah, I, you know, it's it's a good question. I, I think my hope is that readers come away from this piece sensitive to the complexities of individual experiences in Syria. I mean, you know, no one can claim that Syria has been undercovered it's it's certainly drawn a lot of attention from um, from the media, but what I what I hope is in some ways, in some small ways, unique about this piece is that it offers the vantage of an individual who undertook violent action in Syria and works to humanize that person and works to humanize the range of their experience and choices um, without trying to absolve them, but, but, but certainly by trying to understand them. Um, and my hope is that, that people come away a, a bit more sensitive to the, the range of different experiences. Nick Fortek, thank you for joining me. Thank you very much. I'm now joined by Idris Ahmed, who edited the piece. Although I think you said that's an exaggeration. It was pretty much in shape when you first read it. Yeah, it was a very fine piece of writing. And um, so that's why I didn't take, um, well, it didn't require much editing at all. So there was just some tweaks here and there and uh, just precision of language in, in a few places. But it was just a really extraordinarily well-told story. So it didn't require much from the editor. Yeah, it's quite an interesting story. I mean, it, first of all, it's long. Like, it's three times the length of anything else we've published. When you first saw it, I guess you you immediately thought, okay, there's something quite special about this. Yeah, I mean, um, as editors, you receive a whole lot of things to um, read, you know, a whole lot of submissions. And um, 
if usually in the first page or two, you know, you get a sense of whether this is worth your time or not. And uh, it takes something very special for you to be to want to read something that is about 25 or 26 pages. And mm -hmm. uh, I think this story was it. And um, it was quite an extraordinary story. And um, and also, I think it was just um, it's not just that the story itself is extraordinary. It's just the, the telling of the story. It's just so well constructed. And um, so that's why. I, I was I was hooked from the start, and it has that um, um, that I, I quite like that literary device. I think people like um, um, Cormac McCarthy have sometimes used it. He, he used it most probably famously in in Blood Meridian, where the old style of storytelling, where um, you at the beginning you provide a summary of what the reader is going to read, and yet you keep the reader hooked throughout because uh, you know. You know the broad out outlines of the story, but yet it's all about the details. And mm -hmm. uh, I think that that device worked really well to, well over here, and um, it certainly kept me gripped throughout. I mean, he tells it in the in the third person all the way through. He very rarely has quotes from the from the fighter. Do you think that, in a way, that sort of way of narrative storytelling is a better way of conveying what's happening on the ground? Yeah, I mean, I think um, um, one of the things actually just yesterday I was advising one of the um, writers who who was um, um, who had submitted something to us that um, one of the things to avoid is when you have these long, very often journalists rely on these long chunks chunks of quotations, and um, it kind of uh, absolves the writer of actually telling the story or being um, responsible for the for the accuracy of the story. Mm. And uh, by contrast, what happens is that um, um, there's much more. Um, you can say that uh, it's a leaner and more concise and more precise way of storytelling when the author takes the responsibility and um, incorporates not just uh, um, the testimonies but also. The story into a, a kind of narrative form, which is not interrupted by um, pointless quotations. I mean, mm -hmm. only the essential. That okay, only where the words matter. So I think that that creates a much leaner construction, and I think it's uh, um, the storytelling is much better. The author is more in charge, and um, um, and the author is more responsible as well because uh, you know that. Uh, is not just taking the quotations and um, um, paraphrasing them. You, when you're, it's under your byline, so you also feel like you have the, um, you have to take responsibility for the, in, for any factual claims that you're making in the piece. You have to take the. I mean, you have to trust the author, I think, to take you on that journey. It's not like a piece of reportage where the person is going to put in quotes and you can check those quotes and look at them. You sort of have to trust this this author to take you on this long journey over actually many years in the, in the story. Yeah, absolutely. I think and um, um, you also, there's a kind of a richness in the story of detail that um, which, you know, gives you the... Um, the reader the confidence that well you are reading something that is based on uh detailed research because very often um if it's a very general story that if it's describing places in general events in general so you you always have a degree of skepticism and um, by contrast if you have a story which has these very precise details about places and incidents and um, um so all of that builds the reader's confidence and you are then very much and all 
another thing is just bringing the story to life. I mean, very often what happens is that you have um, you have kind of a um, a catalog of incidents, but they don't add up to a story. And mm. um, I think that what's what's really good, a good story is somewhere where you you kind of uh, um, you become in some way involved with the story, as in. You know, you're you're very much these people become real to you. The incidents become real to you, and you start caring. And yeah. um, I think that that's what uh, um, makes a difference. It is very much like that. I mean, it's a it's you know sort of character driven with this guy Kifah. But I, I wondered actually, weirdly, I was reading it and I thought, you know, actually, even though it's so long, this would actually be a good way into the whole story of the Syrian civil war if you hadn't been following it very closely. If you didn't know much about the story and you were sort of just coming into it now, actually reading something like this, even though it's long, might give you an overview of it. Absolutely, I think that's that's what was really um, that's what stood out to me because um, it kind of tracked the different um, the evolution of the civil war, how it started, the initial kind of euphoric moments, and then you have the hopefulness, and then later on the imposition of uh, and the militarization of the conflict by the regime and then how people take up arms and how that changes people's lives and then eventually that uh, when it once it becomes an armed conflict obviously there are there are people who are better at war making than they are at coming up with ideas and they start dominating and then um you know how that changes the dy dynamic of the revolution and the eventual exile which has been the fate of most of the original revolutionaries so i think that it tracks the whole um the evolution of the syrian revolution itself so well that i think it's a very good illustrative story it's also illustrative in another way i mean because the main protagonist is um, uh, an ismaili and um at the beginning, the conflict was you had this way complete uh, this pan sectarian or this pan kind of communal aspect to it that it was very inclusive, and um, and what happens over time is that you have um, you know this sectarianization that starts happening around the second um, um, uh, in the second year when the regime committed a series of uh, sectarian massacres, and um, I think that that starts you know putting a wedge between communities, and I think it was a uh, very much a deliberate strategy from the part of the regime because they they wanted to keep um, the at least the Alawites dependent on them or their security they tied it they wanted to tie it to their own survival so it was very much a deliberate strategy and um, it eventually uh, you know it led to the rise of um, 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 in response Sunni extremists and so I think that that's all of that is also uh, very well tracked in the story that you have um, in, in the revolution in a microcosm in one yeah person. they hand he handles quite a lot of that those twists and turns quite lightly I mean I I, I like those sorts of stories like where you see these big social and political movements sort of through the eyes of uh, of one person we did a piece like that actually Shelley Kittleson did that one for mm -hmm. us about about Syria as well actually the it's called the um, the changing of Deir Azor for those who want to find it on our site. Um, and that was sort of similar in that it was about one person and how he was aligned with these different factions over the course of the war. And I quite like that about Nick's story, that you you start to see these different transitions. Um, you talked about it just now, and but in the piece itself, they talk about the transition in, in Barza and in this revolutionary suburb of Damascus when Hezbollah and Jabhat al-Nusra come in and mm. suddenly you've You've got this conflict, which was originally sort of 
this sort of scrappy band of revolutionaries. And suddenly you have these battle-hardened fighters, people with intelligent networks coming into it with real heavy weaponry. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think there's a, that old Chekhovian uh, injunction, show, don't tell. I mean, I, I don't know if it originated with Chekhov or not, but I think that that's, uh, you know, something that he uh, used to emphasize. And I think that's what makes the story really special to me, because um, um, there's no um, editorializing in it. It's just the story itself illustrates these transitions, and uh, they they are described as they happen. So basically... This is how it's unfolding in the eyes of people who are in the middle of it. And um, that's, I think, the power of the storytelling here. Um, Nick has done a phenomenal job of uh, of making you almost live through these different phases of the conflict. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I think that that's kind of, um, um, you know, that the, to me, that's a model piece of writing when it comes to show, don't tell. That here is, you know, just showing you throughout is telling you how it felt throughout, not just what happened. It was interesting because I, I was thinking about another piece that actually that we also published. Zain Erham wrote a memoir of the revolution's early days for us. And that was, you know, that was really very much of her memoir of being on the ground in the early days. And a lot of the same themes oh, for the for the audience who are interested, um, the story, if you want to find it on our website, it's called How the Syrian Revolution Was Organized and How It Later Unraveled. Um, by Zayn Erham. But her piece focuses much more on her own experiences. I think with this one, with Nick's piece, because you have this central character, Abu Kifah, it gives you a sense like in real time of what these, what the accommodations people had to make during the course of the civil war. Yeah, uh, I think it's um, it unfolds over a longer period of time and um, its, it's twists and turns are also quite, um, you know, ex- extraordinary. So I think that that's what... Um, what takes you through through the whole story and i think sometimes the way um we are conditioned that um everybody's conditioned to kind of uh de-emphasize the dramatic parts of their life and also i think that people when they're telling a first person story unless you are one of those very showy type of writers people have this tendency to downplay things and um so it always takes um, I think it works best when somebody else is telling your story and mm-hmm. um, so they don't have that almost kind of this expectation or demand that you are somehow have to be modest about things or have to be, um, you know, in some places you have to kind of uh, exaggerate things. The second person is kind of, uh, you know, your your bullshit detector in, in both in terms of exaggerations and um, uh, understatements. So I think that that, that very often yields a, a better story. I mean, we have, we have published uh, some other really extraordinary stories. I think, um, you know, Russia's one comes to mind about um, um, visit to Eastern Ghouta. Mm, um, yeah, and I think that, that because uh, to me, it um, it just did such a wonderful job. There's that uh, description of that child who's on a bicycle and, uh, you know, who can't take um, um, bread into this besieged zone and where everybody's just hungry and, uh, you yeah, know. yeah. And so the thing was that that story was just so beautifully told. And then there was also later on that part where, which kind of really floors you, which is when, um, when she finally goes to this besieged area and everybody is hungry, but people haven't lost that, um, you know, that courtesy and uh, so that people are actually offering her the food that they don't have. Mm-hmm. So I think that those are the kind of stories which really stick with you because, you know, uh, I mean, this kind of, this, 
this sto uh, story has got these amazing moments in it which really stick in your head you know that they 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 just stay in your head and i think the same thing happened with russia story you know that mm. i only read it once but that story is in my head you know because it's yeah. just so kind of a vivid it is very vivid actually i mean the, the idea that she says in that story that you know you could look down towards damascus where life is carrying on as normal and yet here you are in the middle of this siege yeah I wonder if I mean, that raises a question to me about sorry, about Nick's piece, which is that, you know, if you think about it, I mean, the story takes place over four years, uh, two years of this revolution and then two years in exile. Um, so it really started almost a decade ago from now, from where we are now. And this civil war, the Syrian civil war, you've written about this is probably the most documented civil war in history. So I wonder what you feel a piece like this adds to that history so much has been said over so many years well i think it's um uh, it's something actually i'm writing about in my my forthcoming book and one part of it is that we um over a period of 10 years what happens is that you have seen atrocities happening at such frequency you have seen stories like really the kind of stories that if you heard one of them that could that would stay with you for your entire life but when you hear a thousand of them then something else kicks in that your self-preservation mechanism kicks in that you just do not want to hear anymore or you don't want to register anymore because you know you also uh, the audience wants to be able to function you know the journalists have come up with all kinds of uh, names for this like compassion fatigue and all kinds of things but and but what happens is that sometimes when um any historical event or historical kind of development has been dented um, in people's mind by statistics or cliches, then something, it takes something quite um, particular, extraordinary, and something quite visceral to reawaken you know, your symp sympathies. And I think that in this case, this is why the story really resonated with me, because I think that the story is just so particular about uh, a person's um, that whole gamut of a person's feelings, expectations, you know, everything from the euphoria to the complete despair at the end. So it just becomes um, illustrative of, okay, what this is what it was like to live through all of that. And it hasn't ended that for many people, you know, that this is not just, it hasn't ended. In fact, I think probably the most um you could say the darkest aspect of all of this or all serious stories is that everything that had led to people taking these massive risks and you know putting every um taking these massive risks and and rising up in such numbers and making such huge sacrifices is now still there in fact yes. you know yes. it's consolidated so yeah. so people who are living under it are back under those very conditions that had led to these massive, um, you know, this massive upheaval. Mm. I mean, it is interesting that the when you think about this, these big questions through the prism of one particular person, you do get the sense of what the, there's a sort of moral ambiguity to it. Because when he writes about Abu Kifah, this guy is not is hardly like an ideal hero. I mean, he joins the revolution. Um, he doesn't talk too much about his sort of the reasons why he did so, but he he drinks excessively. I mean, he cheats on his partner. He's happy to lure people he thinks are regime informants into dangerous situations. And in a way, 
that is a ref true reflection of what it's like in being being in such a difficult situation that there aren't really these clear-cut lines of the right and wrong and good and bad. It's just that you're trying to survive daily life in such an extraordinary situation. Yeah, I mean, I think that that's kind of uh, another of the, uh, of the great strengths of the story that it's it's it doesn't moralize anywhere. It's not a morality tale, and what it does is that. Uh, but at the same time, it doesn't. Um, you know, it's quite clear about the distinction of um, um, you know where the the balance of evil lies. But the thing is that it doesn't paint the opposition as somehow being um, you know for the a band of angels. It's uh, it's human beings flawed human beings like uh, the rest of us and um in very difficult circumstances uh, and presented with very um awful choices that they are making the least worst choices in these various circumstances and i think that that's kind of um it presents the reality of the conflict much better than when you know you have got these more um almost a lot of the stories that you also, I think that that's where that's why I was not um, too troubled by the length of the article, mm. because when you're telling these type of stories in, let's say, you know, a two thousand word article or even most of the what media writes is even shorter, so you just don't have the space to develop those stories. You don't have the space to develop those characters. That you don't have this, um, um, you know, the ability to say that well, here are people who are um, not just ar archetypes that they are real human beings with um, um, maybe, you know, a side which is noble and willing to make huge sacrifices, but yet at the same time, they also do all these minor, um, um, you know, they have their minor um, sins, which are, um, which again, yeah, the reader is in a position to, um, it, I mean, it may kind of, uh, I remember that there were uh, some parts of the, story that I was I was kind of um, um, thinking about that you know you have got um, people who are in these really really terrible circumstances so you always have to wonder that you know are they making the choices the same way as you are making because we are not presenting we are not presented with those kinds of dilemmas and yes. um, so that's why people who pass judgment you know so this is I think one of the great strengths of the story that um, it's first giving you the context of so, well here's the kind of situation you are in and you know that that uh, really harrowing but interesting incident in where he um, the person is luring somebody to uh, for interrogation but then you know it turns out into something much much terrible mm -hmm. and um, you know so there's this dilemma between his his own moral compass which has accepted a certain level of um, uh, a risk or you can say almost like a, this moral compromise but the circumstances take it way beyond this person's the level of uh, compromises that he's willing to accept. So all these different ch difficult choices that circumstances impose on people. So I think that that that's very um, you know in in a really I would say that um, in, in a really powerful way it's illustrated in the story. I think that probably takes us towards the the ending of it because it ends rather abruptly. Um, it ends, I guess, in a way that so many of the stories of people in, in wars and revolutions end. Um, and as you were saying earlier, I mean, certainly a lot of the story of the Syrian civil war definitely ended in this way um, because, you know, the circumstances haven't changed. We're talking now just before the ending of the of the Syrian election, which will no doubt return Assad to power for a fourth term. And 
a lot of the the stories of the people involved ended in the way that Abu Kafas ended in Nick's piece, where they turned that pain inwards. And I wonder if a lot of the people who read that story will think to themselves, well, I mean, was it worth it? Well, I think this is a, that's a really good question because a lot of the um, stories that have been narrated, you know, there are some really great stories which have been told um, powerful in their own way. I think uh, Patrick Kingsley's book at the New Odyssey had this central character who was again a Syrian and who went through again the various phases of revolution, but it had a nice happy ending. The guy eventually ends up in Sweden with asylum and, you know, makes a new life for himself. And many stories like that have come out that you have got the story of uh, um, the conflict, the hardships and everything, but there is some kind of a, at least a positive resolution to it. And But that's not the experience of most people who participated in the revolution. I mean, I think that, um, you know, probably the more illustrative stories are people like Mazen Abu Hamadawad, Hamadawad, who the guy who was, um, who actually even managed to flee, who was tortured in Syria, managed to flee, got asylum in, in the Netherlands, but somehow was, um, and, you know, the guy was, it was very clear from, um, he used to be on my Facebook, uh, he was a Facebook friend, and um, you could clearly see that, you know, that the, his experience in the regime uh, prisons had left him quite damaged and uh, they managed to lure him back in and now he has been disappeared. So this is the story for, for the audience who aren't following it very closely. This is the story of a, of a man who he made it to exile, but then it looks like it took a psychic toll on him and he decided to return to Syria. And since then, nobody's heard from him. And the assumption is that um, he's probably in prison. Yeah. And um, Sarah Afshar's film, um, is really extraordinary in, uh, where this person is featured. I mean, the regime in, in during his original torture, they had to, uh, they had cracked all his ribs, you know, as part of the torture. And um, so he was um, he had eventually managed to get to escape, but apparently they used some kind of a trick to um, the regime, and also he was not doing well in exile. So he decided to go home and um, has disappeared since. So um, I think that a lot of stories ended that way. So it didn't end in, you know, some kind of a positive denouement. Some people managed to get asylum, but that's a very small minority. Yeah. Uh, most people are still living in various form, forms of um, um, hardship, whether that's, you know, it, whether it's as refugees um, in Idlib, or even worse, whether it's people who have had to surrender and are living back under the regime's authority, or people who have who are living relatively better in refugee camps in in places like Turkey, and um, but what happens is that then there were people who managed to escape to the West, and obviously, you know, as well, those of us who live in the West, we know that there's no kind of a, you know, some people come and make a success of their lives, but we don't exactly have these welcoming societies waiting for them here. So so I think that that's a other part of it, that people who go into exile um, are not exactly always um, happy. There are degrees of it, that there are people who, who do better than others, and there are places where you can do better than others. So, um, but what happens is, that, yes, if you're, you know, you end up as a refugee in Egypt, so probably your life is not the same as somebody who managed to make, manages to make it to Sweden. So I think that um, um, there are degrees of um, um, 
despair that people have had to contend with. And um, yes, it turns inward because it's not just that the revolution has failed. You see the way people who who whom you had uh, arose, risen up against that they are not only back in power, but uh, you're also seeing that you're you know all the people that you um, all the sacrifices that you have had to make along the way, all the people that were that died, uh, the friends and all that you have had to lose. So that must take a huge psychic toll. And um, I think that that's another thing that this story brings out really um, in almost a visceral way. You can feel by the end of it, you know, the, where this person is emotionally. And um, sorry. Yeah, no, 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 I, was, I interrupted you, but I was going to ask, what do you think, just to, to sort of bring it to a close, I was thinking, what do you think is our role in publishing these sorts of stories? not just bearing witness, I think. Well, I think we are, um, it's, you know, over time, there's a kind of a desensitization. And um, I think in a story like this, there is a real possibility of resensitization that you've got people who are, you know, over the years have become almost, um, um, you can say that, uh, the, they have li reached the limits of their empathy. They have uh, heard all the stories that they could, and um, you know, done what they thought they could, and but they have moved on. That there's plenty of suffering in the world. But then you you get reminded by a story like this that well, this is an unresolved thing, and here's why people revolted. Because right now there's all these debates, and which which are which never kind of um. um which never go down to the level of the actual people who are who have had to experience all of this. They happen about whether the regime should get money for reconstruction and whether what kind of recon reconciliation, what kind of a transitional um, government is best to resolve all of this. So they're, they're happening, at a, uh, happening at a very high altitude um, and a lot of the time with little actual... Um, even regard for the dynamics on the ground or what's even real and possible. So I think that the story like this brings it back to life. Well, here is why people had revolted. And here's why, um, you know, that even if, let's say, that Assad gets all his reconstruction money, and even if, let's say, that he restores every city back to the order that it was in before the conflict started, but before the conflict started, this is why people were um, so eager to um, rise up against that regime, that this is how intolerable it was that led people to take up arms in the first place, or first rise up. They Taking up arms also came later. Mm -hmm. And it's important that you have that story told in the way that it was, so that people remember it, both now and into the future. Absolutely. Well, Idris, thank you for joining me. Thank you. It was a pleasure. The story is called The Philosopher's Wine, and you'll find it on our website, uh, along with the other essays mentioned in this podcast, uh, Shelley Kittleson's, uh, Zane Erham, and Rache Lass's. You'll also find many other pieces of reporting, essays, and memoir from the Middle East and beyond. Thank you.